Turn with me yet again to 1 Peter chapter number 1. 1 Peter chapter number 1. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 18, and I'm going to read down through verse 21. I'm going to look at those verses this morning for a time, and I pray that they will be an encouragement to your heart as we consider the execution of Christ's purchase, the actuality and execution of Christ's purchase. First Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, these are the words of God. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. One must appreciate the style of the Apostle Peter. Those of you who've been around a little while, you know that we have been engaged in a verse-by-verse study of 1 Corinthians, a Pauline epistle, and we have talked a deal about Paul's style and Paul's manner of writing and communication, and we know that sometimes Paul can be rather sophisticated, and Paul can go on for verses and verses, and you think that you've read several paragraphs and you've only read a sentence or two. Uh, Peter is quite different. These are not the esoteric words of a learned theologian like we might find with an Apostle Paul, but rather uh, these are the simple and straightforward confessions of a backwoods fisherman from Galilee. That is who Peter was. He was very direct, very blunt. Uh, If you know anything about Peter from the Gospels, you know that he was very quick to speak, uh, though he might not always have had something profitable to say, he, he was sure to say it. And I can certainly identify with Peter because it seems that we both have a keen knack for being able to stick our foot in our mouth. But the beauty of the text before us lies in the fact that it is on the one hand very simple. There's not a whole lot of complicated jargon to sort through. One need not have a great theological degree to understand what our brother Peter is saying to us. The beauty of this text also lies in the fact that though it is simple, it is nevertheless abundantly profound. The wisest theological minds could never exhaust the profundity of truth contained in the words of this fisherman. This is, brothers and sisters, the true splendor of God's word that it is shallow enough for a babe in Christ to wade in, yet it is deep enough for the mature Christian to dive down into all of his or her life and never reach the bottom. Here is the crux of Peter's argument in these verses this morning. This is what he is trying to communicate to us. And this is what I want you to understand this morning. Jesus Christ did not haphazardly come into the world 
as a divine backup plan. Jesus Christ came into the world with His course already fixed, with His path already before Him, uh, with His life's work laid out for Him to come and accomplish. And everything He said and everything He did was all in perfect harmony with the plan of God that had already been established for His life. And the ultimate highlight, brothers and sisters, the the pinnacle of His obedience to the Father's will is seen in His work on the cross. On the cross, you must understand, Christ really and actually accomplished a particular work. See, in order for there to be a specific accomplishment, there must first needs be an assignment. You cannot go and accomplish something in particular if you have no plan, if you have no purpose, if there has been no sovereign decree. There was an assignment for Christ. His assignment was commissioned to Him all the way back in eternity. As the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit agreed to redeem a people for His name. The Father said, I will give you an inheritance I will give you a people that will worship you. I will raise you up and sit you upon my right hand. And the son re-stipulated to the father and said, And I will go, and I will take on human flesh, and I will subject myself to the, the shame and reproach of a fallen world, and I will render myself to those who will betray me and steal me and arrest me, and try me, and beat me, and mock me, and scourge me, and I will go to the cross, and I will then give my life for that purchased possession that you, Father, are offering me. Father and the Son had it all worked out long, long ago. You say, well, how do we get in on this wonderful deal? How do we become partakers in this transaction? Well, the Spirit... Two, he said, I too will go. And I will go after the Lord Jesus Christ and before the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will individually take the payment made, the the redemption accomplished by Christ. And I will apply it to the hearts of all those for whom it was secured. Christ's assignment was commissioned to him in eternity and it was revealed to us in his coming when the angel declared that his name would be called Jesus for he would save his people from their sins. This was a great task, brothers and sisters. This was a great accomplishment that only Christ could perform. This was a work that he came to do. Jesus did not come into the world uh, thinking that he was just going to be received and loved and hoorah. And then all of a sudden, he was sitting there wondering, well, why is everyone turning away from me? Why is everyone rejecting me? What's this cross you speak of? No, no, Calvary was no surprise to our Lord. Calvary was why he came. He left the splendors of heaven, as the hymn writer says, knowing his destiny, 
was a lonely hill called Golgotha where he suffered and died for me. Because Jesus so deliberately sacrificed so much, brothers and sisters, how much more ought we to deliberately walk in a manner that is pleasing unto him? And so our text this morning is Peter's reinforcement of the teaching that we are saved on purpose and for a purpose. On purpose and for a purpose. Let us look at this text Beginning at verse 18, I've broken it down as I typically do, and I want you to see four things this morning. The first thing that I want you to notice from this text is the payment, the payment at the beginning of verse 18. He begins by saying, for as much as ye know, for as much as ye know, uh, Peter identifies the audience and the nature of his message. He says he is talking to the ye or the you all. To simplify it, the y'all, if we want to put it in West Tennessee verbiage. (laughs) For as much as y'all know. Well, who's the y'all? Who are are the you all? Those whom he has already identified. We read this chapter in its entirety. We know who Peter is writing to. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 tell us he's writing to the, the strangers, those scattered abroad due to persecution, the elect of God. Those who were purposed to be saved by Christ. Those whom the Father had given to the Son. Those whom the Son had come to redeem. Those whom the Spirit will will enter into and indwell and unite with Christ. That is who Peter is writing to this morning. Or shall I say, who he was writing to 2,000 years ago and we are now reading this morning. For as much as ye know, this is also important for us to consider. See, Peter in these verses... He's not introducing something new that they'd never heard before. He's rehearsing something that they knew quite well. He says, you know what I'm about to tell you. This is not new information for you. I'm just going to remind you and re-preach it and retell it. What a comfort that should be to you and I. Uh, Do you ever have to be told something perhaps a few times before it starts to really hit home? Peter was not introducing a new doctrine that he had not yet, they had not yet learned, but this was something very familiar. He was using this knowledge that they already possessed within his greater argument for them to live holy lives consecrated unto God. See, sometimes we have the idea that the reason why we aren't serving God as we ought is because we are lacking in knowledge or skill or ability. And we will, we will tell ourselves, well, if only I knew as much as that brother, I, I, then I could really serve the Lord. Or how about this one? If only I had the speaking abilities that she did, then I would be able to share my faith with others. But oftentimes, the reasons why we're not serving the Lord as we ought to is not because we don't know something or because we are lacking something, but because we fail to apply the things that we do know, the things that we have been given, the gifts that we have received. Peter says, for as much as you know, and here's the payment, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, 
I want us to hold in on this word, redeemed. Redeemed. What a blessed word is the word, redeemed. Redemption is the theme of the Bible. Redemption is the crown work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Redemption is the sole accomplishment that was made there on the cross of Calvary. Caught up in this word is the divine transaction that took place between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Ghost. This is a financial term. Redemption denotes the execution of a fixed agreement between two parties. It it carries with it the idea of to buy something back. Something that was lost. Something that was forfeited. uh, Something that we... We could not afford on our own. Remember, God is God the Son is the Redeemer. God the Father is the recipient of the price of redemption. And the ye, God's elect, those being redeemed. God the Son long, long ago agreed to pay a certain price. And in return, the Father agreed to give the Son a peculiar possession. Brothers and sisters, listen closely. At Calvary, both Father and Son upheld their end of the deal. There was equity at the cross. Jesus was not gipped at Calvary. He did not go and purchase more than He received. He did not go and, and put down a hypothetical deposit, not knowing what He would get in return. He went and he died on purpose for a purpose. He paid the totality of redemption's price and he received everything that he paid for. That is the glory of the gospel. Received everything that he paid for. Let me point this out too. Christ redeemed us. Not from the devil, but from God himself. We were not under the condemnation of Satan. We were under the condemnation of God. We did not owe Satan anything. Uh, We did not commit sins against Satan. Jesus did not come to rescue us from the devil. Yes, he saves us from hell, but he saves us from hell only because hell is the place where people go when they're condemned by God, not Satan. And and Satan is, is there too. And I've heard some that, that will present the gospel that way. That, you know, God has voted for you and the devil's voted against you and now it's your turn to cast a vote. Let me just say that's hogwash. Right. Our sins were committed against a holy God. Against a God whose law we had broken. And against a God who said, for the wages of sin is death. And brothers and sisters, we worked very, very hard for those wages. We earned it. We earned that condemnation. We did not earn salvation. We did not earn redemption. If we did, it wouldn't be redemption. If we did, it wouldn't be grace. No. We owed a debt to God the Father. And only God the Son was fit to come and pay that debt. And that's what he did. That's what he did. Now before we 
we hone in on that price, before we hone in on, on what was that, I, I, I said that there was a fixed price that Jesus agreed to pay. Before we really jump into that, I want us to see first, because it's in verse 18, what were the things that we were redeemed from? Ultimately, like we said, we know that redemption is from the fierce wrath of God. But how does that manifest? How does it look to be, to be under the wrath of God? To be unredeemed? Well, he says, you were redeemed from your vain conversation. Now, that is an antiquated way of stating it, but I think it's a very accurate way of stating it. Your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Much more could be said concerning the Jewish context of this statement, because that's what Peter is getting at, right? The received from your fathers. But essentially what Peter is saying is that apart from Christ, all endeavors, all works, all activities, all of everything is wrapped up in vanity. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, says the preacher in Ecclesiastes. The highest accolades of men are absolutely meaningless in light of eternity. Vain conversation. Conversation, of course, in the King James just refers to your manner of life. The way that you live. You, know, you could say you are redeemed from your pointless living. I think there's a translation out there that renders it that way. Your aimless living. New American Standard uses the word aimless. It's, you're aimless. You have no objective. You have no purpose. You are running around, spinning your wheels, kicking up dirt for nothing if you are not in Christ. Oh, sure, there are, there are those who have managed to attain some degree of success in the world. Uh, we see them on television receiving awards for the wonderful things they have done. Uh, we see them graduating with their illustrious degrees, making their big salaries and all of these wonderful things. And the world looks at such people and they say, wow, they are very accomplished. You ever heard someone described that way? So-and-so, is he's very accomplished. There's only one person that has ever lived, that has ever accomplished anything worth remembering, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That is why the Bible says, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. You say, well, don't we accomplish things as Christians? Absolutely we do. And, and I, I've said this before as well. I, I don't want to go limping into heaven with nothing to show for my Christian life. No, I, I want to be decked with crowns and, and accomplishments. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you what I'm going to do with those crowns when I get there. I'm going to kneel at the feet of Christ and I'm going to cast them at Him. For it is only through Him that we ever do anything that is worth doing, brothers and sisters. Amen. Apart from Christ, we are caught up in vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers. And of course, now Peter is getting into uh, all of the Phariseeism, all of the contortion of the Old Testament system that was entirely messed up. They had, they had taken the law that God had given them as a good thing to point them to their needs for a Savior, and they, have, they had turned it into nothing more than a works-based check the box system and if you've done enough things 
uh, you, you can count yourself as a good Christian. And we're not in much of a different situation today, are we? We think that God will accept us and we, we trust the, the status of our relationship with God by how many boxes we can check. You know, I went to church, I read my Bible, I tithed, so on and so forth. Not bad things, necessarily, right? I mean, they're good things. They give us no reason, brothers and sisters, to think God will accept us and have mercy upon us. Think about the, the, the logic of that statement. Think, think about that. Here is God who has sent his son into the world to live a perfect life for 33 and a half years, who was crucified, who was beaten, who, who was bludgeoned to death on the cross of Calvary. And, and God, God said, I'm sending him into the world to redeem you. And we say, no thanks God, I'm going to read two chapters of the Bible and trust my eternity in that. And I'm going to think that I have a good relationship with you because I prayed for ten minutes yesterday. Lord, you should have seen me. Ten whole minutes. And what does God say back to us? If you want to work, to earn it, uh, you want to perform all of the religiosity that you can come up with, knock yourself out, but it will never be enough. Come and rest in Christ. Come and rest in the one who has finished the work. There's, there's nothing more for him to do. He, he, he's done it all. Don't, don't be caught up in vain conversation. Vain conversation doesn't always mean living out in the world, uh, in, in drunkenness and lasciviousness and fornication. That, that's vain conversation, yes, but it's also vain conversation to cloak your worldliness with Christian vocabulary and to tell yourself that you are going to be able to be good enough in and of yourself to be approved before the throne of God. So man, as entrapped by sin, is in bondage to this dismal state, brothers and sisters. He is. And therefore, redemption involves an impartation of divine life. Redemption is literally taking someone who is dead, who has a heart of stone, and giving them a heart of flesh. And this new redeemed heart now will have spiritual life and union with God. It enables the believer to truly live. To truly live. If, if you're outside of Christ, let me say this to you very plainly. You may exist, but you don't truly live. Everything you do is vain. It's worthless. It's meaningless. Your life, apart from Christ, is at the very best worthless. But brothers and sisters, there's good for you, good news for you once you truly see yourself as worthless. And let me say, until you see yourself and your life as worthless, you, you really have no need for Christ. Because as long as there's something in the back of your mind, that you can still cling to, and you can say, yes, I know I probably need to come to the Savior, but at least I have this one good thing going for me somewhere. That will hinder you. You need to realize, I have no hope apart from Him. Right. I have nothing to trust in outside of Him. I have no assurance apart from His finished work. And then you, you can come. 
What did the hymn writer say? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, I come to thee for dress. Helpless, come to thee for aid. This truth, brothers and sisters, this truth serves for us as a reminder that when we try to bring to Christ anything but our sins, we unchrist him. Don't try to clean yourself up. Let me plead with you. Don't do that. Like the analogy David Morris used to use about the little boy that was, he was outside and he was playing in mud. And he was, you know, he got one hand really muddy and his mother told him, don't play in that mud. And she's inside in the kitchen. She's calling him in for supper. And he looks down and he sees this mud on his hand. And he says, oh no, I'm going to be in trouble. So what does he do? He takes his clean hand and he tries to wipe the mud off. Now he's just dirtier than when he began. The gospel is not for worthy people. The gospel is not for people that have tried really hard and now God's going to get them the rest of the way. The gospel is not for people that are doing their best to clean themselves up. It's for worthless people, hopeless people. People who can't clean themselves up. Who cannot save themselves. That is for whom Christ died. So Peter has now set the stage for what he is about to say. The payment, this redemption. But he now discusses the linchpin of redemption. He will now highlight for us the the magnificent payment made to accomplish this divine deliverance. So we've seen the payment. Now I want you to look at the price. The price of our redemption. And this text really just gets more and more glorious as we go along. Ascend with me, brothers and sisters. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, and then verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. And he tells us what we were not redeemed with, and then he tells us what we are redeemed with. What are we not redeemed with? Well, not with corruptible things as silver and gold. It is hard for us in our human minds to fathom something that is so priceless that all of the world's riches cannot afford it. I have never had a lot of money, but I have seen people that have have had a lot of money, uh, and it seems like they can just pretty much get anything they want. There's nothing off limits to them. Um, I, I saw recently where Elon Musk has enough money that if he wants to go to war on his own, he can. And he just sends some satellites over there to Europe. And I'm thinking, how much money do you have to have to be able to do that? I mean, I barely have enough money to pay my cell phone bill. I surely don't have enough money to send satellites to Europe. How can we comprehend something and it's so priceless, it becomes invaluable. You can't even put a value on it with, with all of the wealth, all of the riches that this world has to offer. This is how redemption is described for us. But there, there again, this is a stumbling block for those who attempt to earn their own salvation with the corruptible things of this world. So, so number one, you must understand, your redemption cannot be bought. I, I don't care what... 
the, the televangelist charlatan says to you about sending this faith offering and I, you'll receive your reward investment. I don't care what the Pope says to you about uh, buy this indulgence and you can be redeemed from your sin. The more a sinner tries to justify himself with corruptible things, the more corrupted he becomes in his own self-righteousness. So what then could ever afford our redemption? But, verse 19, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Dear friend, there is but one thing that can pay in full the totality of redemption's price. There is but one thing that can wash clean the darkest of sinful stains. There is but one thing that can satisfy the fullness of God's wrath against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. There is but one thing that can take a black and depraved heart and make it white as snow. Consider this word, precious. Precious. Peter has used this word under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And this word has never had such a depth of meaning before in any other application. The gold, the silver, the rubies, the jewels, all of the charms of men, they are but cheap toys compared to the precious blood of Jesus Christ. His blood is not precious because it is scarce. For His blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. His blood is not precious because it is limited in its efficacy. For Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. Jesus' blood is not precious because it is not powerful enough to redeem each and every one who receives it through faith. Rather, His blood is precious because it can accomplish what nothing else can accomplish. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. His blood is precious because of its divine might. Would you be free from the burden of sin? Well, there's power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. His blood is precious because His blood and His blood alone can save. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. His blood is precious when you consider God's design for it. That God had purposed His own Son to suffer and die to redeem a people. His blood is precious when you consider the effects of it. As we sing, when I survey the wondrous cross, sorrow and love flow mingling down. And it is precious in the hearts of redeemed sinners who have been washed by it. If you have been cleansed by the blood of Christ if your life has been transformed by His blood, if you have been freed from your bondage to sin and shame, if you have been made an heir and a joint companion with Christ, then the blood of Christ is precious to you. 
And if you sit in darkness, brothers and sisters, then you don't understand how someone could go on for an hour about the blood of a Jewish carpenter that lived 2,000 years ago. A price, brothers and sisters, far above silver and gold has been paid to purchase God's people. And therefore we are under such a great obligation to devote ourselves to His service for He has purchased us with His own blood. We, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We are not our own anymore. You cannot come to be a Christian and think that you can maintain everything else that you once were doing. You will be different. You will be changed. We are Christ's men and women. We are God's sons and daughters. He owns us. He rules us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, For the love of Christ constrains us. Notice Paul did not say that it was his love for Christ that controlled him, but Christ's love for him that controlled him. There's no one but Jesus that has ever sacrificed so greatly for those that they love. I have, I've had several, not many, but several very dear friends in my short lifetime. Friends that have sacrificed for me, that have helped me. I'm sure you could say the same. We have studied throughout history the different acts of sacrifice and, and service and selflessness and it's a wonderful thing when we see that but no one even comes close to touching the work of Christ right. with the precious blood of Christ Peter goes on to explain as of a lamb without blemish and without spot Peter writing to the diaspora, the dispersed Jews, he uses imagery that would have been very superbly familiar. He compares the precious blood of Christ to that of the Old Testament sacrificial lamb. There's two things we need to understand about that. In order for a lamb to be sacrificed in the temple, it had to be spotless. No blemish, no nicks, no disfigurations, no mutilations. It had to be spotless. And that lamb, understand, that lamb wasn't just that they brought the lamb into the Holy of Holies and they cut it a little and the lamb bled and then they patched it up and sent it back out into the pasture. When that priest took that lamb and led him into the temple, that lamb would not come back out. That lamb would be gashed open. His blood would be poured out. He would be put on the altar. He would be consumed in a flame. And God would for a season overlook the sins of His people because of this paschal lamb. But what had to happen? Another lamb had to come. Another lamb had to come. And another lamb had to come. And another lamb had to come. And another one had to come. And it had to die because the, the altar cried out, More blood! More blood! Until in the fullness of times, 
When the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Lamb of God, came into the world, and He went into the Holy of Holies, and He too was crushed by the, the priest of God. God Himself crushed His own Son. Oh, but this Lamb did not remain dead, brothers and sisters. He rose from the grave in victory over death, in victory over the grave, in victory over sin. And He now sits the risen Lamb Amen. without Amen. spot or blemish or any such thing. Amen. It was not simply enough for Him to bleed. He had to die. And he had to rise again. And that he did. Redemption demanded that our Savior's blood be shed until his life was given there on Calvary as a substitute for ours. There, as the sinless one became sin, he yielded his righteousness to us who had no righteousness. And our guilt and our condemnation was placed upon him. When you think of the cross, when you consider Calvary, are you able to look upon that cross and to say, that is my Savior dying for me? Only Jesus was qualified to redeem, for only He was without blemish, without spot. He being the virgin-born Son of God is without the spot of original sin. He being fully obedient to the law, was without the blot of actual sinful deeds. Because He is so infinitely holy, His blood is ineffably precious. That is the price, brothers and sisters. God redeemed us, and He spared no expense. Heaven was emptied as Christ descended and became flesh, lived among us, and gave His life for ours. I want you now to look at verse 20. I want you to see the plan. The plan in verse 20. See, when we speak of the plan, we are, of course, referring to the plan of redemption, to which there are two aspects. See, all of this was purposed. It was was, was designed and decreed. And then it was actually performed by Christ. So Peter begins by saying, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And though men have tried in various and sundry ways to deny this plain truth, yet it remains here right in the black ink of God's Word. This phrase simply means that the person and work of Jesus Christ had already been planned out and agreed upon within the Godhead long before the world was ever formed. Both the intent and the extent of his death was settled. It was fixed. And some men get very angry over this truth. But brethren, I rejoice in this truth. Because this truth tells me that it was God that took the initiative. In his omniscience, he saw my ruin. He saw the mess that, that my sin had made. He, he saw my life long before I had ever lived it. He, he knew that I would never come to Him on my own. He knew that I would never seek out a God to worship and serve. He knew that I would never look for a law to obey. He knew that if He waited around for me to come to Him, I never would. So 
also in grace beyond my comprehension. Brothers and sisters, God condescended in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and He came to me. When I could not go to where He was, He came to me. He came to you. Furthermore, this truth tells us that Christ did not go to the cross to give His life for a hypothetical group of people. But He went to the cross with the names of His people engraved upon His heart. He said, I lay down my life for the sheep. And just as a shepherd knows his sheep, he knows them by name, he can identify them, he can call out to them and they will come to him, so too did Christ go to the cross with this kind of knowledge of you and I on his mind. Think of the the fact that when Christ was there hanging upon the cross, he was not wondering who his blood might possibly someday save, but he was seeing your face. He was reading your name upon his own heart. What a personal salvation. This truth affirms that a Savior was provided before sin was ever committed. The method of man's recovery was settled before his ruin took place. Before one star was hung in heaven or one slab of dirt was ever laid upon the earth, there was already an appointed Savior, a Messiah foreordained to come and save his people. Before you were ever alive to hear about Him, you were already predestined to be saved by Him. God's love for you did not begin at the moment you believed. God's love for you did not begin at the, the moment that you first sinned. God's love for you did not begin when you were born. God's love for you did not even begin on the cross. No, God's love for you is as eternal as God Himself. What a sure and steadfast hope we have in the eternal, unchanging, never-failing, steadfast love of God. That's not a reckless love, by the way. It's a steadfast love. It's a purposed love. And it was that love that caused God to send His Son into the world. And it was that love that caused the Lord Jesus Christ to die in your stead. And it was that love that caused the Spirit to come into this world and to to redeem a people for His own name. To apply redemption. It is that love that has... If you have a desire to be here this morning, if your heart rejoices at the preaching of the Gospel, it is because of that love ordained before the foundation of the world but that's the first aspect let's look at the second but it was manifest in these last times for you now why must we have this manifest in these last times for you well because you and I did not exist before the foundation of the world and if that was the, the limitation of God's love we would never know about it so not only did God purpose it and plan it and perform it He also guaranteed that we would come to know about it. He manifested His Son to us. Consider how unknowable God is without Christ. We would never be able to comprehend anything of the nature and character of our loving, 
compassionate, thrice holy God had it not been for the manifestation of Jesus Christ. I I believe that the fullest expression of God's attributes was on Calvary's cross. If you want to see justice, look to the cross. If you want to see wrath, look to the cross. If you want to see hatred, look to the cross. If you want to see suffering, look to the cross. Ah, but if you want to see love, look to the cross. If you want to see grace, look to the cross. If you want to see mercy, look to the cross. Because there on the cross, there was no mere man suspended between heaven and earth. That was the second person of the Godhead. That was God, the Son. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain. For me who Him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And we emphasize the foreordination of Christ and His cross work, and well we should, but our emphasis of this great doctrine must also include the manifestation of Christ. This is why we're not hyper-Calvinists, by the way. This is why we believe that we are called and commissioned to go out and to preach the gospel to every creature. Because if Christ is not manifested in your heart, you will not know Him. Redemption must be individually applied. No one is saved by proxy. No one is saved on a discount rate. You don't get in because of the faith of your husband or the faith of your wife or the faith of your pastor or the faith of your parents. Just as God has ordained the end of our salvation... So has He ordained the means of our salvation. What is the means of our salvation? Is it not the preaching of the gospel? Did not Peter say that right here in this chapter? Later on, he will say that we are born again by the Word of God. Therefore, God in His grace manifests His Son through the gifts of faith and repentance. He reveals Christ to us and He gives us the ability to see He gives us the ability to hear. Eyes that saw not, now they behold Him. Ears that heard not, now they hearken unto His voice. This is the beauty of regenerating grace. Notice also that the Bible says that Christ was manifest for you. For you. Make it personal. Uh, Judge your own self this morning as you read this chapter. Can Peter say this to you? That He was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but He was manifest in these last times for you. Everyone for whom Christ has died will be brought into the knowledge of this glorious redemption by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you are sitting there and you are wondering, did Christ die for me? Does God love me? Uh, has, Has God purposed for me to be one of His? Has He made me a child? You must only ask yourself, do I know Christ? Has He been manifested to me? This is the power of God's gospel, brothers and sisters. This manifestation is not merely an external one. It is not merely, yes, I intellectually know Uh, Christ and and I know he lived in Jerusalem and I know the facts of the gospel we live in the buckle of the Bible belt everyone knows those things it's an internal manifestation it's not asking has Christ affected just your intellect but has he affected your heart 
Not has he imparted to you some new knowledge, but has he changed you, changed your desires, changed your affections? Can you say this morning, the things I once loved, I now hate, and the things I once hated, I now love, because I am a man, or I am a woman, or I am a young man or young lady who is consumed by the passion of Christ. He has become my all in all. He has captivated my heart. He has given me new affections. I live for Him now. I don't walk like I used to walk. I don't talk like I used to talk. I don't go to the places I used to go to because I am not my own anymore. I belong to Him. There are a lot of things, worldly philosophies, that can change your behavior. Alcoholics Anonymous has successfully helped people not drink anymore. There are programs that can change the way you behave, but only Christ can change who you are. Changes your identity. Do you know the Christ that died for you on that cross? Peter sums up this sentence in verse 21. This is the purpose, by the way. We've seen the payment, the price, the plan, and the purpose. Who by him do believe in God. Remember, Peter, what was he doing? For as much as you know, right? He's recounting things that we already know. Why, Peter? Why remind us of this? Verse 21. Who by him do believe in God. I'm reminding you these things because it is by Christ and Christ alone that we come to know God. And we must never forget that. You might be running the Christian life well, but I guarantee you, you take your eyes off of Christ, place them on your own performance, place them on anything else, you will fall. Look unto Him. By who, or who by Him do believe in God? By by Him. By the One who shed His precious blood for us. By by Him. By the One who was without spot or blemish. By, By Him. The one who was foreordained and destined to come and give his life before the world ever began. By him, the the one who manifested and revealed to his people in due time all that he had done for them. Dr. Avery Rogers used to say that salvation is God in time letting you in on what he's already done for you in eternity. That's the good, see, the good news of the gospel is not, well, if you do this, then you can be saved. No, the good news of the gospel is Christ has done it all. <laughs> That's good news. Quit what you're doing because you're failing and repent of it and rest in Christ. That's the gospel. Big difference. Who by him and by him alone we believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. See, the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ provides us with the basis for the promises of our hope. God raised his son so that you might know that you too will one day be raised. And what the resurrection was as Christ emerged from the tomb, it was as if God was in heaven with a divine stamp of approval. And as Christ came from the tomb, He stamped approved, approved, approved. God the Father is entirely pleased with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are in Him, 
He is entirely pleased with you. Apart from anything you have ever done, He is pleased with you. Yes, sometimes preaching means exhorting people. (laughs) And it means having to to preach scriptures that that would, would condemn us and would convict us. But understand, child of God, though you might feel conviction over your shortcomings, and you should, and you should strive to serve Him better, you must understand that if you are in Christ, He is pleased with you. You are at peace with God. You are not his enemy. You are not a stranger. He loves you. He cares for you. He has sent his son to die for you. He has sent the spirit to help you along the way. And even right now, he is preparing for that glorious day in which he will call you to himself and you will be with him forever. So what must we do? We must endeavor to walk in light of this redemption. Let me say... To those who perhaps don't know Christ, pray that you see how imperative it is for you to come unto the Savior. If you are thinking, well, I'm doing it on my own now, I'm going to give it my best shot, and if that doesn't work out for me, uh, someday I'll come and see what Christ has to offer. Let me tell you right now, you're not going to get very far, brothers and sisters. In fact, you will only be going in the wrong direction the longer you run from Christ. Come to him. He stands ready to receive you. He's not asking you to clear your, your, your name, to clean yourself up, to prepare yourself. He's not saying, well, if you can do X, Y, and Z, then I'll think about saving you. No, he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Jesus Christ. For you're not going to be redeemed with the corruptible things as of silver and gold but only with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Christ's accomplishment on the cross, how he has died to redeem a people for his own name. Lord, may you help us. May you encourage us. May you bless us. We love you because you have first loved us. Thank you for manifesting your Son to us. And we pray that if there is one here this morning that does not know him, would you manifest Christ to them this morning? Right now, save them. We love you, Father. We praise you. In Jesus' name.